Have you ever wondered what the world would be like if people really listened to each other? Me too. In a noisy world, how do we focus on listening to the things that matter? Do you feel heard? And are you able to make others feel heard? Join me and guests from around the world as we tackle these important questions and become better listeners along the way. I'm conductor and creator Timothy Myers, and this is Listening on Purpose. Hi, everybody. Well, surprise. I know you all thought we had wrapped up the first season of Listening on Purpose, and we did too. But my team and I decided we wanted to do a little bonus episode for you. Uh, As you know, most of the guests on the show come from disciplines outside of my own. This episode is an exception. Mina Marcana is the general director of the Spoleto USA Festival in Charleston. You're going to hear a lot more about him and our history in the course of this conversation. Now, this is a longer form conversation, more like what Mina and I have had over cocktails for years now. And I am excited for you to be a fly on the wall for this one. All right, Dr. Mina Marcana, here we go. Mina, welcome to Listening on Purpose. This is so amazing to see you. Thank you. And I'm sitting here in Charleston, South Carolina, um, where you now live. And we've known each other for, it's 10 years, a little, 10 and a half years. Yeah. January of 2012. Yeah, 10 years, 10 and a half Um, years. So how did we meet? How did we meet? We met at Houston Grand Opera when I was the dramaturg there i it was it was more or less my first job out of graduate school i had i had uh finished my phd uh about uh a year earlier something like that um in oxford and i did uh a masters and phd in musicology and composition and um i worked for 6 months in new york at opus 3 artists and then I uh, moved down to Houston uh, to be the dramaturg of Houston Grand Opera and also had a a cross appointment at Rice University. And we met when you were down there doing um, the Benjamin Britten Opera, The Rape of Lucretia. That's right. And the rest is history. The rest is history. I think we immediately, after the first rehearsal, like we went out and got an old fashioned together. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, right. Like, <laughs> One of uh, now, now thousands. Thousands. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I remember and I just, and I conducted a lot at HGO kind of in the ensuing years and that's just really, I don't know. We did a lot of deep diving, um, kind of conversations about art and the way it's done or not done. And, and I, I think, you know, our, we had a lot of, conversations about this particular industry, the industry of classical music performance, which is um, an erudite industry, uh, which has its own peculiarities and its own power structures. Uh, And we talked about that at length from our different perspectives. Um, And I think we just really felt like we were kindred spirits, you know, through those conversations. Uh, and then after that, um, I moved to Berlin in 2014 uh, to take on a post as the founding dean of the Baron Boim Said Academy. And you came and visited me like my first year there. Did you come the first year or second year? Did you come in 2015? Oh, man. When was it? I, I, I'd have to think back. But it was I was there when you met Sarah, your now wife. Right? Yeah. So I yeah. think it was 20. You were there in 2015. You were there in November of 2015 when I yeah. met Sarah on a Tinder date. Um, <laughs> that's right. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> and then Sarah and I would go to Ireland to visit you when that's you were right. conducting at Wexford. Right. Sarah is Irish. Um, so we have, I'm Egyptian. She's Irish. We have Irish Egyptian babies that are really a handful. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> They're beautiful. And, and yes. And also, I mean, and you are a godparent to my son, Henry. I am a so, godparent to your son, Henry. That's um, right. Yeah. What's the most important travel you've done in your life? Whoa. That's a good question. So 
the first time I traveled as a musician was when I was nine years old and I was in the Philadelphia Boys Choir. It was 1993. And <laughs> someone thought it was good, a good idea to send a bunch of nine, 10, and 11 year olds to Central Europe, sure. Warsaw Pact countries, formerly Warsaw Pact countries, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, and Poland in 1993. Uh, and it was a great idea. As a matter of fact, it was a spectacular idea. I sang in, you know, Bruno, in Prague, in Budapest, in Krakow. It was just incredible to, to kind of sing in a boys' choir uh, at that level. And, and after that, you know, we did further trips, and, and I ended up becoming kind of like a boy diva soprano, uh, singing solos in Carnegie Hall and the Sydney Opera House and stuff like that. And that's, that's sort of what started me in music. Um, which is a non-traditional start, I think, in the United States. I think most people in the U.S. start in music in, in youth orchestras or on piano. It's, it's much more British, actually, to start in a boys' choir. Mm. Um, and I started in, in the boys' choir, and that's kind of what gave me my... That's, that's what first... That was my first taste of the stage. Um, I still know the, the shepherd boy part to Tosca. Like, I'll never forget that stuff. So that was probably my first most important trip, closely followed by a trip to Egypt uh, in 1998 when I was 14 years old. Mm. What makes music critical to your life? You know, it's, it's such an all-encompassing question that I, I can't really formulate an answer. That's such a cop-out. I'm so annoyed, but... <laughs> I mean, are we allowed to curse on this show? Like, sure. I mean, it's just infuriating <laughs> that I can't yeah. come up with an answer to that. Uh, but I, I feel like, I feel like if I did not have music, my life would be entirely monochromatic and two-dimensional. Mm. Like, it's, it's, it's a whole. It's like smelling. It's like eating. It's 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 uh, it's it's that kind of physical to me. Mm. Music it moves me to that degree. Even though I've gone through different iterations of being a musician, from being a boys' choir to being a something of a pianist to being a composer to being a scholar, a musicologist uh, to then doing this kind of cultural leadership, administrative stuff, and curating and things like that. I I feel like. If, if I didn't have not just music, but the anticipation of an opening night, mm -hmm. my life would just be flat. It's mm -hmm. almost like it's, I'm an adrenaline junkie for it. Like I, I, need, I need more and more and more opening nights. I think that's why I'm well-suited to the festival life because it's, it's all of these opening nights compressed into 17 days. Yeah. Um, and you work year-round to make sure that, you know, that chunk of time, that slither of time, a whole year's worth of preparation, but also of, of programming and performances are just jammed into this delimited period. That's just, to me, the greatest shot of adrenaline, like that, that I, I'm, I'm addicted to it. Mm -hmm. And you? When I, I, I have a, there's a seminal moment you know, I grew up in, in central Kansas. And so I didn't really have much early access to live classical music. I mean, public radio was really how I came to it. And then um, I think I first heard an orchestra live when I was maybe 14. And that was the Wichita State Symphony. Hmm. I, didn't, I didn't see my first opera until I was 21. Oh, wow. Um, and so I, what, what was it? Candide. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I went to the Met for the first time when I was in graduate school, when I was right. 25 or 26, 26, like maybe. And, um, and, um, anyway, so, you know, for me, it was like the way I came to it was different. I didn't know people who were professional musicians yeah. except music teachers. Yeah. Right. And so for me, it was a, a really, uh, you know, a foreign thing. And, um, then I realized that you could you could do it for a career. Mm. But I still had a lot of other interests. Um, you know, right out of high school, I worked for a film company. I took three years off between high school and college. Mm. 
And, um, I, you know, I worked for a film company for a while. I worked in commercial music in Nashville. I got really, really into cooking. And so mm. I applied to culinary school. And then I decided to go to school for music. And, it, you know, it was, again, this journey for me of discovery. And I've always had intense multiple interests. Um, but for me, music was a real haven and something where I remember the first time that I had one of those um, portable CD players, like a CD Walkman, right? It was a Kenwood. <laughs> um, and I had saved up for it. And I remember... I still remember the sensation of putting on headphones and listening to that high level audio and just being lost in it. Mm. And there's something for me that's ineffable about it. But what I know is, um, you know, fast forward many years later, I'd become interested in conducting and then really was going down that path. And when I was Lauren Mazel's assistant, there was still a part of me it was asking, is this for me? Is, is, a, is a career making music for me? Um, because as you know, I mean, there are a lot of sacrifices involved and you work very, very hard with not much guarantee. Um, and the seminal moment for me where I knew that it was part of my life forever was um, there was someone um, I, I had met and who, with whom I eventually ended up becoming really good friends. We were chatting and she said, or she asked, what's your favorite book? And I thought for quite a while. And my response was a full score of Mahler's Fifth Symphony. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) It probably doesn't surprise you now, knowing me the way you do. And as much as we talk about Mahler, but... (laughs) But, you know, when I thought about it, I mean, that's something in which I find everything that I think is life, right? I mean, beginning, ending, life, death, joy, tragedy, solace. I I mean, really anything you could name, that's where I find it, is is in that music. Hmm. And so for me, I knew that even if I couldn't name exactly why, that that was really important to me. And then that sort of began a journey, uh, you know, as a performer. And the biggest thing that I've been able to identify, and this was probably around or shortly after you and I met that I really um, discovered this, is I think that what we do as performers is create miracles um, because we're how, whatever your involvement with a performance is, right? You now as an executive of a, of a large festival, right? Over multidisciplinary festival, overseeing all of these different things to a stagehand to me on the podium um, is that all of these things are going to create moments that never existed before and will never exist again. Mm. And so for me, that's really, that's the distinction that I bring to it now on the podium and off is this is the opportunity that we have. And, you know, I'd love to talk more about the transformational quality or ability of music. But to me, we are creating these miracles because even if we, I've got, you know, Beethoven too fresh in my mind right now, but you know, that first note, if we could play it and then stop and then play it again, it would would not be exactly the same. Yeah. And because everyone is bringing this level of contributed empiricism to it and everything that happens in everyone's day contributes to it and including the audience. Yeah. And for me, this is my obsession with it now as a performer is that I think we can create truly transformational communal experiences in a way that nothing else really can. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that you have Beethoven in your head. You know, I'm, I'm quite omnivorous in my tastes. Uh, I really, really love a lot of hip hop. Like 
I really love Kendrick. I love the Wu-Tang Clan. I like the Roots. Um, I really love a lot of jazz. I love Ravi Coltrane. Uh, mm. I love, um, you know, Indudutso Makatini, people like that who are who are alive and doing incredible stuff. Not only, you know, the, the old jazz greats like John Coltrane and Ornette Coleman. Um, and I love, like, Weezer. I was in, like a Weezer cover band in high school, <laughs> which I wish I didn't say on a podcast. It was it's very short now. Yeah. Everybody's searching for archival bootlegs. Um, I, I don't think there's any archival of it. <laughs> I've, I've successfully scrubbed them from You're the right. internet. <laughs> no. Um, but no, I, I, and I love, I love all of this different type of music, but you know, I am, I am trained and not only that, I, I grew up in a relatively, abstruse musical um, tradition, which is that of Coptic chant. So I, I grew up Eastern Orthodox or Oriental Orthodox, which is uh, Coptic Orthodox. That is the minority Christian tradition of Egypt. And um, there is a rather rich chant tradition that adherents of, of that faith believe go goes back to the pharaohs. Mm. And so I, I kind of grew up in between worlds interstitially between classical music uh, which was a rigorous notated tradition and Coptic chant which is entirely oral it's non-notated it's by rote learning and I had these two sides of my youth but I think that gave me kind of a rich appreciation for different traditions that said what, what draws me back to Bach what draws me back to Handel or like Charles Valentin Alcon, you know, mm-hmm. like you can go more obscure than, than you know, the, the standard canon. And what draws me back to, to Mahler, certainly in Beethoven, um, is that it is actually, it is actually inflected through a tradition. Mm. And it's that tradition which gives the music both its problem and its power. Like you can't, it's, it's okay to have both. It's okay for something to be problematic. We just have to recognize that it's problematic. And that tradition is problematic. Sure. It, it, it obscured others. It, it's any tradition that is like a synoptic canon is problematic because it's a canon by exclusion. Of course, we all get that. Um, and of course, the tradition also coincided with the height of, of European imperialism, which makes it more problematic. And some of that is built into it. Sure. But the rigor of that tradition uh, has this kind of beauty in that people endeavor to constantly perform in a uniformed manner, but never quite succeed. And that, that, that sort of tension is what draws me to that tradition all the time. Well, it's interesting. I, I think for me, that's another thing that makes live performance really special, right? Is... I look, I know that both you and I love recordings and you're, you know, particularly into vinyl, which I just don't have the patience for, man. <laughs> I'm just um, so scared that Hugo's going to destroy it. He's he's discovered it like the other day and he's really into Carlos Kleiber's Parsifal right now, which means he's either got great taste or like something else is going on. <laughs> I had to put my turntable away for like two years because Henry was just destroying it. Um, you know, for me, I, I love, there, there are several recordings that I just know by heart. And that's a really comfortable, wonderful thing. Um, and, but it's a predetermined outcome. Mm, yeah. It's right. It's, it's a, you know, it's, what's going to happen. You know, what's going to happen. It's the same every time. Yeah. And, you, the listening environment can change, but the actual product doesn't. With live performance, and this, this is tying into something you just said, um, is you know this pursuit of excellence and of doing something together, something that's greater than the sum of the parts. But that requires risk, mm. right? And that 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 trust. You know, one of my professors at Harvard Business School, I'll never forget this. He said. You know, empowerment isn't free. It introduces risk into the system. Yeah. Right? And I I think about that a lot as a performer. You know, when Professor Margolis said that, I immediately wrote it down and it's on a post-it on my computer screen. Um, But that that's what we do as performers and as we're taking a risk. And I think there's something to that, again, back to why live performance of any genre 
is irreplaceable is because there is the risk that it doesn't work. There is the risk that there's a train wreck. There is the risk that a dancer falls or that you, you do you know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, there, it makes there, there it these sound inherent things. The, the, the appetite for risk doesn't necessarily make us sadists. You know, we don't want the risk. We, we, we don't want the catastrophe, the disaster to happen, but that the risk itself is, is kind of the drug. I think. <laughs> and also, I, I do believe that, that that's also largely true for the audience as well. Mm-hmm. Right? Because then it's this idea that nobody in the audience paid for a ticket and left home and, and made an effort to come to a performance to see something, you know, go wrong or not, yeah. or not be good. Right? So they, there's a similar investment from the, from the consumer side that I think is a great responsibility. Risk doesn't necessarily have to be about a catastrophe. I mean, it's also interpretive risk. Mm. Uh, it's also um, like potentially cathartic risk. Uh, it, it could also be like a kind of risk of discovering some sort of overlap layering of different emotions that you didn't really realize you had until you saw this piece being performed live. Mm. And I think that, like, that's kind of, it's, it's the human experience. Like, I mean, there's, there's a reason why you go back to the earliest days of the Sumerian civilization, and one of the first things you see on a clay tablet in cuneiform is a song. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's because humans need to actually perform. They, mm. they need it. It's in their bones. It's in our bones. I'm, I'm speaking like I'm an alien, but I'm actually a human. <laughs> uh, so um, it's, it's, in, it's incredible to me that that is something that sometimes is not valued by our society. It, sometimes that, that need to perform, that need to create, that need to see art is devalued because it's really hard, especially when you're talking about ephemeral performance art, which happens in time and space and it's hard to capture. It's hard to actually, you know, put put a price value on it. It's hard to actually put a dollar value on it. Um, and that difficulty means that it is difficult to translate its worth into our society. Mm. So I, I that's something obviously that is the economics of it are constantly at the forefront of my mind as I uh, endeavor to successfully run and steward a multidisciplinary performing arts festival in Charleston, South Carolina. So uh, that that to me is such a fascinating um, problem that we have as 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 people who love the arts and are participants in the arts. Mm. Something I was thinking about as I was driving today is d- engaging with this question of what would have to happen so that the next time there's a pandemic that all arts workers are deemed essential. Oh, <laughs> which is a huge question, right? That's something to wrestle with, but I like engaging with some of the, these kind of seemingly insurmountable questions sometimes because it took it, you know, this goes and it talks about the economics of it, the problematic past of a lot of art and how we, reckon with that in, in, in the current context, mm. right, of mm. our society and our species now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's very fascinating to me. Um, I think one of the challenges we have specifically with performance art and with things like opera and classical music is that it's one of its main economic traits of soft power is its social aspect is people getting together and kind of, you know, honestly, wheeling and dealing and business making is kind of built into uh, opera as a performance structure from the 18th century. Like, if you, if, you, if you see an opera in Paris before the Revolutionary War, there were all sorts of unspeakable acts happening behind the robe the mm-hmm. the shuttered sort of uh, loge boxes. That could be gambling, that could be sex, that could be... Uh, people having a great meal, that could be people sort of doing business together. And the opera was just kind of a place for this stuff to happen. And you open the, the, 
the shuttered blinds and, and you actually sort of see and witness the, the spectacular spectacle of a Jean-Baptiste Lully piece or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, so the social aspect of it cannot be ignored. Um, but that is not the core of what it is, and that is not the center of what it is. And what I think we are constantly trying to do is realign people to what the center of it is. Mm-hmm. That is its transformative power. That is its ineffability. The problem is that that core is the hardest stuff to explain. Mm. And so how do, you, how do you do that, right? In Raleigh, North Carolina, or Austin, Texas, or Charleston, South Carolina, uh, how how do you how do you talk about that? Uh, I think festivals are good places for mm-hmm. for people to experience that. And and I, I have to say, I think a festival like Spoleto finds itself in a fairly good position vis a vis the rest of the um, performing arts industry because it is time delimited and it is national it's of national and international importance and the fact that it's you know it wouldn't be of national and international importance if it weren't a festival because it's a festival it's of national and international importance um so i i think the event quality of it you know you, you think of a festival you don't i don't really know if if festivals should be sort of talked about like regional opera houses should be or or symphonies should be, or, or, or orchestras rather, or, or chamber music series should be. Maybe festivals should be talked about as like artistic events, like the Cannes Film Festival, or mm-hmm. like you know the Freeze Art Fair, or something like that. So I, I think that the event kind of builds in the social aspect, which gives the festival a little bit more of an economic buffer. But how do I talk about the importance of the art itself? That's... That's a big challenge. I think one way is to do it through comparison um, by showing different types of pieces, contrasting how uh, they ex- sort of exist in the world side by side and kind of drawing a greater unity out of that. And another way is to really kind of guide and create a sort of sense of narration for the visitor through mm. that event right. to kind of give them something to hold on to. And you can do that through great writing, great dramaturgy. You could do that not, nece- not necessarily so explicitly, but through programming, um, through putting together programs that kind of work together in some ineffable way that have a thread that is connected to them. So I, that's the kind of thing that I'm interested in doing. And I think, you know, you know for, for far too long... We have sort of done works in opera houses that are just kind of put together because you need a you need a traviata because it's bread and butter and you need a salbaflita because it's bread and butter. You know, these are the war horses, these are what people see. And then you need like two or three experimental pieces. I mean, I think I think that formula, people know that formula. It doesn't it doesn't work anymore. Mm. It, it needs you need to actually say something in a season for people to be convinced, for people to be compelled. You need to curate. I mean, you know, arts museums curate all the time. Why should not leaders of, of cultural performing arts institutions curate? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, that brings to mind something that you and I have talked about a lot is involving other, other art forms or other things, right? And I think this is why both you and I are very well suited to festivals, right? Because there is that aspect to it. But I remember once you and I having a conversation about, you know, if you and I took over a big opera house somewhere together, like, I think I've said the first thing I would do is build a test kitchen in the lobby, right? (laughs) Where you had James Beard award-winning, whatever, you know, like, but really drawing these parallels for people that there's a lot to this and these things all intertwine. Mm. Um, and that's on a on you know a functional level, but you really started to talk about something about art being a conduit for conversation and understanding, and that really ties into somewhat into this idea of understanding the past of some of these not just pieces but entire art forms, mm-hmm. right? And and their evolution over in opera's case, you know, four hundred some years. For you, what is the greatest thing that art can do? Mm. I, it's really hard. This is a hard question for me to answer. I, first of all, I'm, I'm going to 
I'm going to put some parameters down to my answer. Okay, fair. The first is that I don't think there is one single thing that art can do. Good. That is the greatest thing. Yep. Uh, the second is art, the, the meaning of art changes with, um, with societal inflection. Um, so I think the role of art's function stays the same, but the way people interpret it changes. Uh, and then the third is that different media have different ways of expressing different meanings. So film expresses something in a way that opera cannot. And opera expresses something in a way that theater cannot. And theater expresses something in a way that dance cannot. So on and so forth. So let's just keep those three parameters in mind. Great. With those three parameters in mind, I, I, I'd like to say I'm very well-versed in the Baron Boim Said world, which is effectively that it is through the power of transformative art that we can bridge cultural differences. Right, and just I'll just interject. So the Baron Boim Said, Daniel Baron Boim and Edward Said, Baron Boim being a famous conductor, Said being a famous scholar, good friends, and this is the academy that you had right. up in, in Berlin. So, yeah, thank you. Yes, yeah. So Baron Boim was, or is, excuse me, um, a... Uh, incredible, uh, well-known um, Israeli conductor, Argentinian Jewish conductor with Israeli citizenship, who built a uh, orchestra with Edward Said, who passed away, uh, boy, I, I want to say nearly 20 years ago, 19 years ago. And that orchestra, Edward Said, is, was Palestinian. That orchestra was the West Eastern Devon Orchestra based on uh, a work by Goethe, the Vestistische Divan, in which Goethe was inspired by Hafiz, the Persian poet, to write these kinds of Hafiz-esque poems that are reflections on an idea that Goethe said was Weltliteratur, world literature. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of esoteric, but the idea is that through music, you can bring Arabs and Israelis together uh, in what is you know, commonly perceived, with good reason, as one of the most intractable internecine uh, conflicts of, of, our, of our day and age. Uh, through Edward and Daniel's work, um, I really believe in this concept that art has this power to bring people from different sides and different places. Art has a power to break down the social and political disparities that we build up. Mm. And, and we have to be willing to let art do that work. So these organizations have to be willing to actually make sure that the art is not really about a hallowed view, but it is truly democratic, it is truly meritocratic. And, and that's part of my passion for understanding diversity in art, understanding uh, inclusion in art, access in art of all different types. I think one thing that is very I'm very passionate about in Spoleto is making sure that the artists we have on stage is, is reflective of the demographic we wish to serve, yeah. not the demographic we do serve. Right. And, and I think it's even more important for that to be the case when we have these political differences in starker contrast in this day and age. I think there's an ability for it to be the platform for conversation, mm -hmm. right? That can be a little bit more of a neutral ground. Yeah, I, I think art's just the antidote to the echo chamber. So the echo chamber is about, you know, ideas that are just kind of built off of every single person sort of thinking the same way on social media and, and one idea kind of sort of holding sway and that idea kind of being bounced around and, and that idea not really being looked at critically or that idea not really necessarily being rooted in any reality and, and then everybody sort of just believes it. And, and art's the antidote to that because art is in and of itself contrapuntal. It is about holding multiple perspectives at the same time. Mm. That's what chamber music is. Chamber music is multiple voices at the same time. That's what theater is. It's multiple voices at the same time. It's contrapuntal. That's why artists, I think, have a greater capacity for understanding people from different places and, and, and different cultures than people who have different disciplines, to put it quite frankly. Yeah. There is a power that music has to move emotion 
that um, the other arts that almost nothing else has. Not the other arts. All arts has that power, but 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 music has this completely intoxicating heady quality to kind of just have people spill over with emotion. You know, when when I think when in in Plato's Republic, when the poets were banished from the Republic because of their um, ability to um, destabilize the perfect Republic through their power, it was actually through the power of of word and song. So that kind of goes back to the power that music has when it's combined with greater meaning outside of itself. Can, you know, Plato thought it could destabilize societies <laughs> in, a, in a very, in, in, a, in a sort of kind of pure philosophical way. Interesting. I mean, hearkening back to something you said about emotion. Um, I remember hearing once Casper Holton, who is a very well-known opera director whom you know, um, is the head of the Royal Danish Theater now. Um, you know, commenting about how um, he was talking about opera specifically, but I think this can apply to numerous genres, uh, that it's an emotional jungle gym, mm. right? And then it puts, it puts the consumer of it in, in a place, or it has the ability to where you're experiencing things, right? I think everyone who's look, watching an opera finds for better or for worse themselves in mm. a character mm. um, and how perhaps there's a permission that can be given in art to experience an emotion or to have a feeling that might be uncomfortable mm. Or, mm. or might be joyous or one that creates intimacy or creates space. It's so funny for you to say that about Casper. Um, one of my challenges with opera these days is its need. I think there's like kind of like a collective operatic chip on our shoulder. <laughs> it's and it's so operatically large. Yeah, uh, and it's it's a need to sort of do like ultra realism in opera, like kind of just sort of pure realistic. Uh, yeah, just ultra realism. I mean, historic realism. There's there's nothing fantastical about it. And and opera was actually birthed as basically a fantasy genre. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it was it started as like let's find a way to bring song and word together to bring Greek myths to life effectively um, during the during the late Renaissance into the early Baroque. Um, and now we're just like doing operas that are a lot of times just kind of like mundane family dramas and that's fine i just think it's run its course um opera is not realistic let's just dispense with that idea and let's actually embrace the fantasy and mythic nature of opera i i want to see more opera that is not about ultra realism that's not like set in the 1990s and is about a family quarrel i want to see opera that's like crazy fellini-esque myth and fantasy and magical realism and, and that's kind of the opera that I'm interested in looking at. And it could be myth and magical realism that's sort of pushed by, you know, psychological trauma, like, mm -hmm. you know, effectively in Wozzeck or something like that. Right. Um, it, but it, I think when it's just purely about, like, realism without the heightened emotive state of Verismo opera, it just sort of falls flat. Um, and I think that's kind of my criticism of operas composed over the last 15 years is that it's flat. It's, it's just, I'm not going to say any pieces. I'm not going to say any names. I'm not going to say any composers, but it's flat because it's just ultra realistic hmm. when what we should be doing in opera is embracing this weirdness, it's kookiness, it's wildness, it's fantasy. Um, I mean, like that's what the greatest opera composers did. Right. Um, Don Giovanni is not an ultra realistic piece. It ends with a statue coming to life and dragging a guy down to hell. You know, right. uh, nothing about Dezalbeflitte is real. You know? Right. Um, and, and there are certain directors I know who embrace. This is one of the reasons why I love Yuval Sharon. We were talking about mm -hmm. him before the before we started recording, because I think he understands that fantasy. He understands that mythic quality. He wants to embrace it. Um, but yeah, I, I, and I mean, Wagner, Wagner is all about myth, um, sometimes to the detriment of himself. 
Um, even things like the Verismo stuff, even things like Tosca, even things like La Boheme, there is something about their day-to-day lives being heightened by some strange psychological trauma or some strange emotive state. And, and if you have that, that works. But without it, it's flat. Hmm. It's, I, it's interesting to think about that in the context of... I, I've often thought that it's a, it's a mistake for us... Let's, let's just take opera as a, as a genre to try and compete in the entertainment space. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Because we're not Netflix. We're not, not, we're not, and never will be. Like, we're not going to do House of Cards, the opera. Like, it's not a good idea. (laughs) And so that's not our competitive advantage, Mm -hmm. right? If we're just talking in kind of dry business terms. Yeah. Um, But the, the, what you're talking about is, Mm -hmm. right? And that if, and also the fact is, is that we can be the antidote to a technology laden existence you know, where you can put that away for a couple of hours and not doom scroll whatever social media, but actually have a real experience, which, um, you know, for me, when I think about the future of our, of opera and symphonic music and all these things is I think actually there's a, a bright future if we get it right. Correct. Because the more these, the more we are separated this faux togetherness of social media, right? Which is mm-hmm. actually just a separating of individuals. Mm-hmm. We have the experience that is the opposite. Agreed. Right. Where you can come in and you can re- regain that feeling of experience. Yeah. We have that competitive advantage over traditional theater because it is in song, which gives you more possibility for theatrical ambiguity, um, which is kind of the state you want to be in. When you have the, the great thing about Lucia de Lamamor is that there are so many points in that score where what is being said in the text completely clashes with the um-pum-pum mm. um of the music. Yeah. And it's, that's the tension. That's what's so fascinating is that there's actually also now emotional counterpoint with the music offsetting the action on stage that's one of my favorite things about opera actually is 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 finding these subtexts Mm. right and and sometimes i mean there are obviously many layers sometimes it's in the text and the the word that the librettist chose can be purposefully ambiguous or a a subtext of and you know mozart was particularly brilliant at this Mm. of um, the orchestral context that's sure. created, like commentary, or perhaps saying something about a character that they don't even realize themselves, or oh my god, y- you know, the, or yeah. or commenting on something, or, or providing an emotional understanding or, or capacity for something that just through the text being delivered yeah. is not com- is there, but is not completely fleshed out. I would love to talk a little bit about pieces that. Let's say, Madame Butterfly, mm. Aida, mm. right? Some of these that, that um, in a modern context, mm. it, it can be really difficult to take on. Yeah. Right. And um, how you look at pieces like that, mm. and as a producer, because I know you and I have talked about new productions for some of these that the challenge of representation to, in right, these pieces, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so how we take pieces like this. And I mean, I guess you could talk about Wagner in this context too, right? Of, of, um, that the context is what is, what has changed, you know? Yeah. Over, over time. Yeah. Maybe that's fair to say. I mean, I I think the thing that we have to come to grips with is that all of these pieces kind of suck in our day and age. Like (laughs) if we look at them, if we look at them purely as works, they just don't really work. They're, they have problems of representation. There are problems of sex, of class, of gender identity, so on and so forth. So we have to grapple with that. I think you grapple with it in two ways. One, quite frankly, you stop trotting out the old Franco Zeffirelli productions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You actually give room for different people with different perspectives to interpret those pieces in different ways so that you don't have 
a complete sort of all-encompassing synoptic interpretation of these pieces all the time. And then the second way that you save the art form is you compose new pieces. Mm. So th those are the two things that I'm interested in. I'm interested in reinterpretation and I'm interested in new composition. So, I mean, I think that the great thing about opera and the great thing about staging is that that's where you can do your reinterpretation. That's where you can actually challenge the conventions. You can challenge the brown face and black face that's inherent in the libretto of that, of that opera and, and turn it on its head and, and find a way to show that Aida is worth saving. It's, it's, even though our heritage and our culture is stained, is problematic, is poisoned by our past and continues to be poisoned by our, our present, we're not perfect, but we can try and endeavor to show how these works of art are kind of deeper and more beautiful reflections of our imperfect selves. It's really beautifully said, and it just, it, it, I think especially in 2022, when the typical response to a lot of these things is get rid of it, right? I don't have space for that. I really don't. Yeah. I mean, I... It's I, a missed opportunity, yeah, right? Yeah. I, I think, I think the, the worst thing we can do is throw away our cultural heritage, whether we like it or not. This is our cultural heritage. We live in the United States of America. This is a country that was, to a large degree, again, problematically, and through violence, and through colonial, uh, colonialism, and through war, and, and through incredible violence, um, built on European ideals. And we need to embrace that past and understand it so that we can have a better future. And you can do that in these pieces. You can, you can understand that our past was not perfect, and our present is not perfect, and we can strive for a better society. It's, it just brings me a little bit back to the why of this podcast, is that I think as a, as a species, we're in existential crisis um, in a few ways. And I don't think that we find a way to start addressing the world's stickiest problems without first creating more listening. Mm. So that's my, that's my journey with this is to create a global conversation around listening mm. and the impact that it can have. And you know, what you're talking about, it's kind of alarmingly apropos to that because, you know, actually being willing to take something and examine it and have difficult conversations about it with stakeholders and to understand our past and how something was wrought, but then how now as you know, modern citizens of the world, we examine it. Yeah. That there's a lot to be, there's a lot to be gleaned there. Right. And I'd like to think that art is a great method for creating those conversations and creating more listening in our world. After the 2022 festival closed here in, in Charleston, I did a kind of series of retrospectives with, with um, colleagues and, and with some artists. You know, it was our first full festival out of the pandemic, you know. And, and your first festival as first, the general director. My first festival as the general director. And we did three operas in rep um, through the festival. Uh, one was a backwards lab OM. Another one was a conceived piece by Kareem Suleiman called Unholy Wars, um, which was uh, a kind of strung together recontextualization of the Crusades through uh, Monteverdi and his contemporaries. Um, and the last piece was a piece that had many interruptions and fits and starts, which was the world premiere of Omar by Rihanna Giddens and Michael Abels. And Omar told the story of Omar bin Said, a West African Muslim who was uh, enslaved and, and captured against his will and sold into bondage here in Charleston in um, 1807, in Gadsden's Wharf, just you know, less than a mile uh, from where 
this opera premiered. One thing that I remember hearing quite, that actually kind of shook me, was some people said, we didn't, we didn't expect this festival to be so intense. We didn't have a break. And it wasn't the physical, arduous nature of what we were asked to do. It was the emotional, intellectual nature that was intense. Hmm. Performing in a piece like Omar, not having a break, doing a performance at the Mother Emanuel Church where nine people were murdered in an act of terror by Dylan Roof um, in 2015. These are very difficult things to do. And, and you know, artists, I try to task the festival with the heavy lifting of having this conversation here in Charleston. And I think that I burdened a lot uh, I burdened a lot of the artists by by trying to have that conversation. So I think we can also express some joy and levity. Mm. And that's a lesson that I've learned in 2020 for 2023, that there needs to be a little bit of breathing space. There needs to be some fun. There needs to be some color, some joy. Mm. And that's uh, that's something that I'm I'm trying to program into 2023. What would the world look like with more listening? I think the world would be a more meditative and slower place. I think we are so fast. And so, and I am the first person who's guilty of this. I am the first person who is addicted to my phone, sending off emails, not taking a minute to listen to what is happening around me. And if we listened more, we would be slow to anger, slow to, slow to fear and compassionate and more empathetic it's very simple I, I just think we would be slower in the truest and best sense mm-hmm. and we need to slow down and listening helps us slow down it's a lost art a lost practice it is one thing that i'm gonna try to get back to doing this isn't really listening as much as it is like kind of practicing and doing doing my craft i don't have a piano yet in our in our house here we just moved in in January, and we need to get a piano. I had a harpsichord in Berlin, which was uh, oh, yeah, a that. COVID purchase. <laughs> right. And before that, you had a you had a really nice Steinway upright. That's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, but a harpsichord is really like the COVID purchase of all COVID purchases. <laughs> like, it's it's it like beautiful. sitting there and being like, you know what I need while I'm trapped inside with my family, and it, what they would love is if I had a, a harpsichord, an instrument that sounds like skeletons <laughs> copulating on a tin roof. I mean, like just <laughs> oh, that that quote is going in the show description. <laughs> yeah, um, I I need to get a piano because I want to start playing through like my my well-tempered clavier, like preludes and fugues in the morning. Um, and, and it's just a way for me to actually actively do music. It's a way for me to breathe music and it's a way for me to listen. It's a way Mm -hmm. for me to listen to myself. Um, and it's so, it's so incredible. It gives me more endorphins. It gives me more energy. It it gives me more, it's like working out, you know, it really, it, it, it kind of gives me more energy every single day if I have that in my, in my morning. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to go back to that. I need to get that piano. Yeah. You know, it's interesting what I was just thinking, talking about listening, is that that can mean a lot of different things. And you were the one who introduced me to Justin Zorn. Yeah. Who had him and his co-author Lee on, a, we did a great episode yeah. together. It was a really we yeah, fascinating conversation. Grad school together, yeah. And, you know, their book, um, Golden, um, and regarding silence, but there's an interesting distinction that um, for them, silence does not mean the absence of noise. And in fact, there was a, one of their research participants who actually found his greatest silence while he was using a chainsaw to um, carve giant wood figures. And I think listening is somewhat the same. I'm learning, right? When I started this podcast, there was part of me that thought, is this too narrow? Like, am I going to run out of runway here at some point? But what I've really been able to learn is it's, there are so many aspects of this idea, um, so many contexts for it, Mm. so many ways to think about it, um, that it can go 
perennially. Mm. And, and I think just drawing, closing the loop on that, right? That just like silence doesn't necessarily mean the absence of noise is that listening can take on a lot of different meanings. Yeah. I like that. I mean, I, I, I know, I know Justin very well and I know that he's quite Cajun. Uh, so I, I mean, we've, we, we were obsessed with John Cage in graduate school and talked about it a lot. Um, so, I mean, that's a very Cajun idea that, um, that silence is, is actually just effectively listening harder to the world around you, not necessarily the absence of noise. Or it's finding whatever produces that feeling of silence for you, mm. right? Like you mentioned John, John Cage, right? The famous, well, very famous composer, but most people probably know his piece, Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, mm -hmm. where the performer comes onto the stage and sits in silence for four minutes and 33 seconds. And how how difficult that is for not just the performer, but the audience, mm. right? That at a certain point, what you have to start to confront when that's the environment that is created for you. All right, last parting shot. If you could put anything on a billboard or that would be transmitted to everybody in the world. Okay. Um, every language. Okay. It doesn't have to be a billboard, but some message that you would want to transmit. I think it would be a recording of St. Matthew Passion. Mm. What do you find in that piece? I don't know. I think it has to do with the way that Bach brings together all of these different lines that are just so beautifully composed, so contrapuntally perfect. And the way he tells effectively the passion of Christ through music, through drama, it's, it's an incredibly dramatic piece. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not, it's not a, it's not a mass. I mean, or, or, or if it is a mass, it's a mass of great drama. So it's to me, there is something about it that I, I kind of always go back to. I go back to it around Easter time, but I, I go back to it every now and then anyway. But I always go back to that piece because of how he uses the, the choir as a sound block with all of these kind of rippling, with this rippling contrapuntal texture, and then has the soloist sort of on top of that choir, and then has the orchestra underneath it, and each is just kind of a block but it's so deeply contrapuntal and moving. It's almost like a series of layers of colors that have all of these incredibly complex shimmers, like the orchestra, the chorus, the soloists. It's like the most live, crazy, moving Rothko painting you can think of, mm. which doesn't exist. Right. Amazing. I'm so... I mean, as a friend, I'm just so thrilled for you that you're here at Spoleto. I, just, I think it's when you told me you had um, taken the job, I was just so thrilled because it just seems to be such a perfect fit for your, not just your skill set, but just your, your being. It's a joy to watch and I'm super happy for you. Yeah. I mean, we're, um, we're really happy here. This is a pretty spectacular place. It's, um, it's a great opportunity. Um, and it, it really is a meeting of all of these different things that I've worked on in my life in one place. Yeah. And it's crazy. I, yeah. I, I, I can't really believe my luck. I, I kind of wake up pinching myself that I effectively have a dream job. I love this conversation, man. Thanks Tim. Thank you for listening to Listening on Purpose, hosted by me, Timothy Myers. I hope you are enjoying our deep dive into the world of listening and are finding it useful in your life. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others or leave a rating and a review. You can visit listeningonpurpose.com to sign up for an email list that includes special episode highlights show notes, and more information about our guests. To find out more about me, please visit timothymyers.com or find me on Facebook at Timothy Myers Conductor or Instagram at Mo T. Myers. 
Listening on Purpose is a production of Extra Musical. Executive producers are Meredith Carter for EQV Media and yours truly for Extra Musical. Listening on Purpose is edited by Brian Baltashevitz for Balto Creative Media. Original music was composed by DJ Spar and performed by DJ and Kimberly Spar. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time for Listening on Purpose. Thank you.